श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जय हरि नाम प्रभु की जय गौर भक्त वृंद की जय गौर प्रेम नंदे इवनिंग नाइस टू बी हियर विथ यू एंड आई थैंक आवर होस्ट्स फॉर कॉलिंग इनवाइटिंग अस वी हैव सीम्स हैव मल्टीट्यूड ऑफ होस्ट्स हियर इन द the compound if you will all of whom you know i guess very well some of whom i've met for the first time but some of whom i've known for a long time also and a long time no see for some so again it's nice to be here with you and um i was told that um you might all might have some questions and um I'd be happy to answer any questions but um i thought that perhaps we'd speak a little from the bhagavatam first shrimad bhag grantaraj shrimad bhagavatam ki jai this is of course very uh, central to the practice of gaudiya vaishnavism amongst the various uh angas or limbs of the angi the body of sadhana bhakti or bhakti as a as a practice it's hard to uh relate to that to some st- some extent bhakti as a practice given the definition of 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 bhakti and the kind of extended idea that bhakti constitutes love of course had to qualify that love of god and so how do you practice love at any rate but it is a practice it is a culture krishnanu shilanam hmm? of that which is uh, favorable to krishna um we call it a practice and there are angas as i say or limbs to the body the angi of of uh, of krishna bhakti that constitute practice but um english language is somewhat limited so practice is kind of not the not the best word again how do you practice love it's uh, it's something like well if you know it used to be as i said before in times gone boy if by if a girl liked a young boy then she find out something that he liked let's say he liked the color red and he liked apples she showed up at the bus stop wearing red and with a bag of apples <laughs> um so she's practicing love in a sense in other words she's finding out something that he loves and um incorporating that so to speak into her life so bhakti in practice is, is something like that and very much has to do with following if you will in the wake of those who 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 do have love of krishna hmm? this is especially the case when it comes to loving krishna in 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 braj in the, his pastoral setting where he said to be surrounded by prema madhurya love endowed with extraordinary uh sweetness sweetness that uh 
it corresponds with the human likeness we find of Krishna in that particular leela. Hmm? It is the leela in which the fullness of Krishna is manifest, and that fullness is his sweetness that is brought out by the measure of the prem or the love there that kind of dethrones, if you will, the Godhead. Hmm? And um, makes him appear as if one of us. Indeed, it becomes so much so that as one of us, as one of the Brajabhasis, that they, they really do wonder if he's God. That becomes <laughs> the question. And the answer is they are more right, really. He's one of them than he is anything else, any gods uh, or, or mystic uh, to whom, whomever else may approach him. Hmm? With less, with a lesser measure or degree of, uh, of devotion and love. So, how do we practice that kind of love? Uh, we basically we try to attach ourselves to someone who has that type of love. And when I was young, uh, don't feel that old, but it was a long time ago, <laughs> um, maybe twenty-two or so. I remember. Uh, at, at, at the temple, um, you know, we all have our long stories, so I won't go into that. But, uh, <laughs> but a devotee told me we take cold showers, and I said, "Why?" And he said, "Yes, because uh, Prabhupada takes a cold shower." And in those days, of course, it was more fashionable to have long hair. And he said, we all shave our heads. And I said, why? And he said, well, because Prabhupada shaves his head. <laughs> Those aren't very sophisticated answers. Uh, but they were satisfying to me. I liked the idea of that they had some, some uh, such affection for this person. Hmm? They were so drawn to him that whatever he did, they were prepared to do. It said sometimes that imitation of a good thing is a good thing. Hmm? So... Of course, we're told not to imitate but to follow in the footsteps, but following the footsteps in the beginning does involve some, on a lower level, imitation, if you will, adopting the similar uh, dress and mannerisms, practices, if you will, so on and so forth. So. so sadhana bhakti is, uh, is, is a culture of that which is favorable to Krishna. When we see, we learn that Krishna likes this. This is favorable for Krishna bhakti. This is not uh, uh, in the lives of, of, of uh, devotees. And we adjust our lives accordingly. And, um, and in the context of that, we try to sort out other motives that may have a... a peripheral, hopefully, influence in our participation. The motives for, really, it comes down to jnana, karmadi, and avritam, that our motives are not um, in, in, in our effort to love uh, predominating over the effort to love for its own sake in one of two ways, either of two ways predominating by way of um, 
making our pursuit happiness dependent and unhappiness uh, independent. (laughs) To be free from unhappiness and to uh, find happiness. Bhakti should not be covered by these things, as I was explaining some of the devotees this morning. There's no suffering for the devotee because the devotee, properly understood, and devotion properly understood, is loving service in which there is no consideration of anything other than to please the object of service. If it's difficult to please the object of service and there are impediments and so forth, uh, it really doesn't matter. And if in the context of doing so, uh, the environment becomes very, on a lower level, I mean, materially speaking, favorable, pleasing, um, that's fine and good as well. Do you follow me? In other words, if, if, we, if our... It's not for us. So, <laughs> if, if Krishna leaves Vrindavan and goes to Mathura, it's... it's, uh, it's it's tolerable in one sense, it's, it's allowable, it's painful for the gopis and the inhabitants of Vrindavan. This is very dramatically played out in the text in Bhagavat, for example. But nonetheless, if it gives him pleasure to go, then no problem. Of course, they know it doesn't really give him pleasure, therefore it's a problem. <laughs> they know, actually, he's more pleased here, so they're troubled by that. The gopis have said uh, through the pen of Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami to accept the bliss that comes from their service because they know Krishna wants them to taste it. Otherwise, it, it has no bearing. Hmm? So, he, this is a... gives us a little bit of a wake-up idea on what, it, what is bhakti, what is devotion. I've basically gone over in a very simple way the, the, pr- the primary and the, um, and the marginal characteristics of what is Shuddha Bhakti, pure Bhakti. It is primarily a favorable culture hmm, of love of Krishna. And secondarily, it is the uh, overcoming of the motives that drive us for acquisition and renunciation. Hmm? You follow me? Boga and tag. This is the, are the two, these are the two tracks that the world runs on. We run after the acquisition of things and we run away from things well, as well. When they, after having been acquired, they turn out to be a little different than we thought. Like, you have to pay for them too. <laughs> and now they're broken. And you're still paying for them. And, and what you wanted very badly and paid for without the bank balance through your credit card, and, and now it's become your night, greatest nightmare. You want to get rid of it, but you're stuck having to pay for it and so forth. So this is basically, in a nutshell, how material life is, is depicted, hmm? running along these two tracks. And you see, the idea of bhakti is that it comes right in the middle. It's not about exploiting or acquiring from the world, hmm? Neither is about running away from the world. Both of these are world-centric, if you will. The bhakti, rather than exploitation or renunciation, 
is the harmonizing of these two tendencies in one sense and more, which is dedication. Because in the context of dedication, we can acquire and there may be some scope for renouncing as well. Therefore, the adhikar, eligibility for bhakti, is one that cannot be, includes the idea that one cannot be pretty much, too much, I should say, predisposed towards in, to, uh, or too much, um, uh, well, too much predisposed towards renunciation or pre- not too much predisposed towards acquisition or said otherwise, uh, to have some balance. There has to be a place for both in the context of bhakti because in the context of bhakti we may have to enjoy. Hmm? We may have to sit, you know, two inches above everybody else. Mm-hmm. You could call that enjoyable, I'm not sure, but sometimes people think of he must be enjoying on that two inches seat there. <laughs> but for service, we'll climb the mountain here. And, and, you know, we're all really just doing the same thing here, uh, whether it be hearing about it or or, or chanting about it. Hmm? So. And if it's more comfortable to be eight inches, ten inches, that's no problem. So, uh, at any rate, um, we have to be uh, not adverse to that. Hmm? Uh, If you come to the temple and we offer prasad, you say, I'm fasting. We say, you don't get it. Hmm? You have to enjoy this now. (laughs) Uh, That you're going against bhakti here. Hmm? Um, so, and the, on the other side, of course, then there are things that are not turn out. As it turns out, they're not favorable for bhakti. Hmm? And these things are not entirely things that are set in stone either. They may be in different circumstances. Some things that were previously not favorable might be favorable. Hmm? So there's some dynamism to this in the context of our our culture. And with good guidance and so forth, we can we can find out that sometimes that. So, some things should be avoided, and sometimes the same thing. It, it may be uh, in our interest to accept it. Just like with the mind, it's not a good idea to try to take it on head-on, if you will. You kind of have to work with the mind a little bit. Hmm? Um, otherwise, it, it, you'll be, you, you won't be successful. So you try to forego... A preoccupation with, with something to a point, but if it just becomes more of that, much more of a preoccupation, then you want to work with the mind, for example, and maybe pursue that thing in a in a in a roundabout way, or with shades of it, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so, at any rate, but but there may be things that uh, there will be things in our life that are not favorable for our bhakti, so we should renounce renounce them. So we're not renouncing, per se, as a path unto itself, neither we are acquiring as a path unto itself this karma or jnana, acquisition and renunciation. But we're loving Krishna. That's what we're doing in bhakti. And in the context of that, well, there may be cause to renounce something. There may be cause to accept something. Hmm? So the point being here that these two tendencies that our life is running on, they become harmonized in bhakti. Hmm? The teeth of them, the fangs of them, so to speak, that keep us worldly bound, hmm? 
were worldly preoccupied, world-centered, renouncing the world uh, or uh, exploiting the world, are are removed. Hmm? So, it's said, for example, if if the it, among the many tributaries that fall from the uh, Himalayas, not all of them make the, make it to the Bay of Bengal, hmm? but the Ganges does. Hmm? And if they enter into the Ganges, then they can also. So if Gyan and Karma enter into the mainstream of Bhakti, then they have meaning and value. Gyan Karma here, meaning in the general, general sense, knowledge and action. Hmm? And the corollary of renunciation and and uh, and, uh, and acquisition. Hmm? So, so so bhakti is a is a culture. Hmm? It's a culture, and um, uh, at the same time, as I say, to it's the culture of love. And you and how do you culture love? How do you practice love? That's seems to be a bit of an oxymoron because we know that love kind of just comes on and it practices us, so to speak. It kind of exercises us. Uh, we look for love in this world uh, for the most part, all the time, uh, directly or indirectly, knowingly or unknowingly. And uh, typically we search for love and can't rest until we can find it. And upon finding it, we rest for a minute, and then we start to move again under love's certain love circle. Hmm? You follow me? We moving, moving in samsara, the circle of samsara, which is a circular kind of a it, you know it keeps going round and round and round in the circle game, something like that. She said. So, the, uh, as but when we find love, then the circle goes. There's another circle. It's not. A, it's not an idle thing. Therefore, bhakti is said to be a culture, an ongoing. Hmm? And we find Krishna in the circle of love. You know, picking the clover. She loves me. She loves me not. This is Krishna's dilemma. She loves me. She loves me not. Hmm? And his friend Subal says, "She loves you." Radhe in, in his ear, and uh, he becomes relieved uh, momentarily. Though hmm? so he's this way riding on the uh, the uh, merry-go-round of love, divine love, uh, has some parallels with uh, material experience of love and its uh, uh, circular movement, if you will. Um, so. Among the things, the angas, the limbs of the body of bhakti, the things that are that constitute uh, bhakti in practice, then um, two of the uh, one of the primary ones is bhagavat shravan. Hmm? There are many of them, hmm? um, many angas of bhakti. But uh, Shirupa, in his uh, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, has, has highlighted uh, five of them. He says, Sadhu Sangha Nam Kirtan Bhagavat Sravan. What is it? 
Simatura Ishvara Murti. <laughs> Worshipping the Murti, living in a holy place like Mathura, hmm? Sadhu Sangha, that, this good good company, hmm? uh, Nam Kirtan, that we just did, and Bhagavad Shravan. Hmm? So, oh, we've got a holy place here, Bhaktivan, and we've, we've done Shravan and Kirtan, we're continuing that in the context now of of um, Bhagavat Shravan, hearing from the Bhagwat, we did Nam Nam Kirtan. Now we'll do Lila Kirtan, hmm? by way of talking about the Bhagwat, and, and in that in the context of the pastoral Lila of Krishna, from the tenth canto, when he says, hearing Bhagavatam, Jiva Goswami comments, this means the tenth canto. Of course, Prabhupada said, first study the first nine, but. We've been doing that for a while. And um, it means to only to understand it in context, of course. So, Namkirtan, uh, Sadhu Sangha, mm, Bhagavat Shravan, we're in a holy place, and the deities, worship of the deity is fifth. We're at the feet of the deity, so we have a lot of powerful uh, angas of, of bhakti in place. Hmm? And. Of course, the great uh, Srimad Bhagavatam is the center of the world of the sacred texts for the Gaudias. And uh, it came to me this, this afternoon that um, in the context of some other things that we've been discussing, we kind of like go on like this all the time, formally <laughs> and informally. Um, I wanted to cite a verse and, and introduce a section from the Bhagavatam of the 13th chapter. I'll read the text for you. This is text 23. Tato nipo mardanan maja lepana lankara raksha tilakashanadi bihi sam lalita sva charitai praharshayan sayam gato Yama Yamena Madhava. So here, Sukadeva Goswami is uh, speaking to Maharaj Parikshit about the Brahmavi Mohan Leela. Brahmavi Mohan. Mohan means illusion, and Vimohan means very illusioned, and Brahma means Brahma, the god the four-headed Brahma. So this is a Leela in which his four heads were spinning, hmm? round and round. And uh, this is actually the, the chapter of the Bhagavatam that my Guru Maharaj, uh, Om Prabhupada, left the world in the midst of contemplating. He was contemplating this Leela and its uh, ramifications, implications, and so forth um, when he left the world in the month of Kartik, which is in the autumn season in Vrindavan, India. Hmm? And so his translation to the uh, uh, Bhagavatam, his great drum, of the, the drum of his translation, if you will, 
um, uh, was really passed on from here, not silenced, but passed on. So it's a very nice chapter, and it's uh, the Brahma Mohan Lila covers about one, two, three, four chapters, uh, something like that, um, three or four, and um, it begins with the. Uh, Krishna entering the forest with his friends uh, for a special occasion. And um, we're reminded of that beginning of the Leela here. This is the chapter that ends the narrative of the Leela. And then the following chapter, Brahma speaks about it, reflects back on it in his prayers to Krishna. So it's a beautiful few chapters of Leela and then the reflection back on the Leela, very philosophical chapters. chapter, bringing out all of the uh, implications of it, which are immense and which are central also to Gaudiya Vaishnavism. The, the, in particular, uh, you may be familiar with the saying, Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam. If you're not, this is a good one to be familiar with because this little pada, this little sutra, if you will, Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam, is the key, the parihas Sutra, the key to unlocking the philosophical uh, truths and uh, Siddhanta, the conclusions of the whole of the Srimad Bhagavatam. Bhagavatam has two two sides to it. Of course, it's a book of philosophy, hmm? and it's a book of bhava, rasa. Nigumakogodoro galitam phalam shukumogadam atdrabasam vitam pibata bhagavatam rasam malayam. Nigama means the Veda. So Veda means well, all these books of knowledge and so forth. So amongst the books of knowledge, then this is the this is not the not the only the the phalam, the fruit, but galitam phalam. The fallen fruit means how ripe is the fruit when it falls from the tree. And how approachable it is, how easy it is to acquire. Hmm? You haven't got to climb the tree. This is this is Bhagwat. It's so nice. You haven't got to climb the tree of so many difficult uh, texts and so forth, and sort everything out and find the find the ripe fruit and what the tree is about, hmm? so to speak, and get out on the branch and 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 find the fruit. No, it, it's the Bhagavatam is taking all of the knowledge of all the numerous and most voluminous body of, uh, of literature, of the Vedic literature on earth, and, and, and distilling it, hmm? presenting it to us in, in it, just brimming with what it's all about, essentially about. Hmm? Well, you know, all of this is about... God, this is about what we are. If we want an argument for God in today's society, we should make, as the as the Vedanta does, as the Upanishads do, an argument from consciousness. That will be that will make sense. An argument from consciousness. It's like people ask, "What is? It? You have a soul. What is it? Where is it? I can't. Can how can we measure it? Can I understand that it's there and so forth." Hmm. To say it is immeasurable is not to avoid the question. If I say to you, well, you say you got a soul? 
Can we uh, you know, measure it and see that it's actually there, test it, where its influence is, and so on and so forth, and so on and so forth. And you say, well, no, it's immeasurable. If I say, <laughs> well, if I dismiss you on that account, I have not understood the depth of the answer. Hmm? It's immeasurable. Hmm? What are we talking about? We're talking about the everyday experience. This is not a question of belief here. We all experience that we have conscious experiences. It means we have subjective experiences, don't we? Red, blue, happy, sad. Can you measure the experience of red? You could measure the photons or whatever and the light that makes up red as opposed to blue. But have you understood red and blue? You have not had the subjective experience yet of red and blue. Even if you know everything physically about red, blue, and green, and so forth, hmm? there's something arguably more to red than that. That's the, the experience of red. And of course, we're now moving from the physical or the objective world to the subjective world. Hmm? Things don't become more vague there. They become more meaningful, more profound, more tangible. Hmm? The experience is more tangible and meaningful than the experienced because the experienced has no meaning without the experience. So as we move from the that which is experienced, you understand me, the objective world and measurable and so forth, towards the experience, where do we go from there? To the experiencer. Hmm? How do you measure the measurer? This is what you're asking. Hmm? You cannot measure the measure. How do you, <laughs> how will you define hmm, that which there is nothing that compares to it? The way we make definitions is by way of comparison to other, other similar things. Hmm? What we find in the objective world of matter, the physical realm with its forces and influences and objects and, and so forth, is that there is absolutely nothing that even remotely resembles experience doesn't matter how many atoms you put together, they don't start to experience one another. That's not our experience. They don't do that. There's nothing in the objective world that even remotely resembles experience. So, to say that consciousness, and consciousness proper means not just the conscious experience, but the conscious, the experiencer, hmm, is, is not definable is not to make it less tangible. It's to say it's, in, it's not reducible to matter. Hmm? It's entirely different from matter. That's why we can't define it because there's nothing like it. Hmm? By saying there's, and this is, this is not something to believe in. These are just facts. There's nothing like consciousness which is from the subjective world, the side of the world, 
in the objective side of the world. And the objective side of the world, the experienced world, matter wouldn't matter unless there was the subjective side that that uh, made it matter. Do you understand? It wouldn't matter without you, and it wouldn't. Who, if, the ma- if matter mattered independently of consciousness, who would know about it? Who would care more? Hmm? So we are the knower, we are the carer. Hmm? So what we, we, we're saying here is, 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 is quite interesting because you asked, or I asked, where's the soul? Hmm? It's, not a, it's not a question of whether we believe in a soul or not. We define something that we all have readily have experience of differently than the materialist. That's all. Now look which definitions which definition is more reasonable. The definition of consciousness as matter, which is unprovable, hmm? despite many attempts and ongoing attempts to reduce it to matter, to reduce the subjective to the objective. This is this is this is a failed experiment from the beginning. Hmm? Well, you will never be successful in this. Hmm? Uh, so to maintain that consciousness is matter, and we'll prove it to you. Uh, Eccles called it promissory materialism. Hmm? Probably called it a postdated check, hmm? something like that. Uh, this is not a very um, uh, reasonable proposal. Neither do we live our lives as if consciousness were matter and therefore nothing mattered, which is the implication of that. Hmm? Nobody lives their life like that. Susan Blackmore is a famous uh, uh, exponent on the nature of consciousness or speculator. Uh, wrote a book among other books, called Consciousness, A Bit of Insight. She said 90% of the people in the world are dualists. What she meant by that is 90% of the world's population, either thinking about it or not thinking about it, think that there's a difference between their brain, physical stuff, and consciousness. And 10%, in which she included, included herself, of course, don't, aren't under that misconception. Hmm? This was a statement in her one of her books. I thought about it for a second and I said, Susan, I disagree with you. 100% of the people are dualists. Hmm? Because actions speak louder than words. We may say I'm not a, I don't accept that, but we cannot act like that. We cannot act hmm, as if uh, consciousness is not... Uh, causal and there is uh, uh, it's like uh, we say uh, what is it called the preformative um, contradiction hmm. if I say I'm dead that's a preformative contradiction you understand I'm dead you can't be alive and say that you're dead in any meaning you can say it but it doesn't mean anything if I'm alive and I say I'm dead, then anybody can say anything, that's fine, but does it have to, we don't have to think it makes sense. And so to say that consciousness is not causal, 
is, is similar because without consciousness we can't even make the statement. Without consciousness you can't even make the statement that consciousness is not causal. Consciousness is required to even embark upon a uh, enterprise for dismissing consciousness. And this is as old as the Upanishads. Hmm? You cannot dismiss consciousness because dis dismissal is an act of consciousness. So this, this, and this is obviously how everybody functions and in, in the world. So therefore, really, hundred percent of the people are are dualists, and intuitively, all human beings sense like this. Now they want to say, well, but but what if observable evidence contradicts it? Well, fortunately, it doesn't. <laughs> There's efforts and promissory notes, as we say, to they will in due course of time. But we'll go on living in the old school of the Bhagwat. This is the idea, hmm? and uh, pursuing that which we are, and it's not that we move from reason to some unreasonable departure from reason called faith and so forth, but we move from the limits of objective knowing in pursuit of knowing that which is subjective, hmm? consciousness. We need, in other words, a subjective methodology for understanding the subjective rather than an objective methodology huh, for understanding the subjective. Then again, bhakti is a, an objective-subjective methodology because there's a lot of objectivity we must bring to the fore hmm, as we're doing really at the moment in the context of pursuing, subjectively pursuing Bhakti. Hmm? We have to, we said earlier there may be things that we have to give up that aren't favorable to Bhakti. Hmm? This is what we call renunciation in the context of Bhakti. Renunciation means to step back from a thing, hmm? to see it for what it is, like you would in science. Step back from a thing, be objective, and just look at it for what it is, and so. So this is very much a part, if you will of the, the culture of bhakti, that kind of objectivity that you don't do only in the lab or only when you chant the japa, but throughout the day it's just you know, that introspection and so forth. Uh, um, the idea in bhakti, of course, is that we theoretically, like I'm saying, we are consciousness and consciousness is different from matter and so let's create an environment to demonstrate that and let's separate consciousness from matter and see how it thrives. Hmm? So that's what we're doing. We're separating consciousness from matter. Hmm? And things that, 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 uh, that uh, and we do it, of course, on, on, different, on different levels, that we forego certain things that people think, how can you live without that? Hmm? Kind of a thing. You know, how, could you, how could you live without eating meat or something? We're showing you can, and other things we can, can be foregone and so forth and it goes up as we grow the renunciation isn't a, the practice as much as it is a result of the practice of loving Krishna hmm? it's part of the practice in some instances when we find something is unfavorable and so forth but to successfully love then there's some evidence of that in the form of the fruit of our ability to forego that which is, doesn't constitute loving hmm? so 
So we're not uh, avoiding the question, as I say, by saying it's immeasurable. It's not, you cannot define it. These, and these are not new ideas. Neti, neti, we find in the Upanishad. It's not this, it's not that. It's not this, it's not that. This is how consciousness is defined in the very uh, rudimentary sense. It's not really defining it either, but it's saying, it's pretty profound, it can't be, it's not that it can't be defined, therefore it doesn't exist. Therefore, it's intangible. It, it, no, because it can't be defined. It's 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 so much more significant now. Uh, and of course, if it is not reducible to matter, which would make it definable, hmm, that's a huge. The implication of that is huge. If consciousness is not reducible to matter because it's not definable, as I'm explaining. That means it's not subject to the laws that govern time and space. So what are you saying, Swami, that you know, you're not governed by time and space and all the laws? And so <laughs> we, yeah, we're saying that. We're saying, we're saying that, that uh, when the body dies, the self, the consciousness does not. The self does not. Hmm? The experiencer does not. That's what we're saying, right? And we are involved in a culture of um, of, uh, of of acquiring experiential evidence in support of that. Hmm? And as the experiential evidence comes to bear, then we can speak about it with more uh, more compellingly and more powerfully, in such a way that it will influence uh, the hearts and minds of others and so forth. Hmm? So the pursuit of consciousness, this is really the, uh, the, uh, the subject of, of Bhagavatam. It's, it, I'm speaking about Bhagavatam. It's a profound book. Hmm? It's the tree you know, of the Vedic knowledge and, uh, and the fruit of it that you might have to sort through and there might be thorns on the tree and so on and so forth to, to get to it's come and taken the fruit and fallen from the, it's at the bottom, at the roots there, at the, on, at the trunk and come and pick it up and it's, you can smell it from a distance. This is Srimad Bhagavatam. Nigamakabhuturo galitam phalam sukumakadamrita drabha sambhitam pibhata bhagavatam rasamalayam muhuraho rasikabhubi bhabukaha This is a very compelling uh, statement of Bhagavatam describing it itself. Hmm? So it's got two sides to it. As I'm explaining, it has a philosophical side. It's the fr- it's the fruit of the tree of knowledge, hmm? and um, and it's it's the fruit, uh, the juice, without the pits, without the, uh, the skin, without the rind, and so forth. Uh, so it's a it's a it's a book of of bhava of rasa. Hmm? Um, and so the two sides of the Bhagavatam, to unlock the Bhagavatam, the key is this little sutra, Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam, Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam, the tattva. But, but this key, we open the, we understand the book in, in context, and we have in place one of the two imp- essential elements for loving, hmm? Uh, absolutely. Hmm. 
One side is this philosophy side. Philosophy says Krishna's too, Bhagavan Swayam. It's philosophy and theology. But what does that mean? It means Krishna is the Swayam Bhagwan. It means uh, the Anadi Radi Govinda, Sarvakarana Karnam. The buck stops there, it doesn't get, go any further. Hmm? That's from the point of view of Siddhanta. If we look at the Bhagavatam from the point of view of Rasa, Bhava, having understood the Siddhanta, we become a little more cap- capable and eligible for, unders- for tasting it. Hmm? First, you know, you read, read the uh, ingredients and the, the directions, something like that. Get the, get the directions down. Read the recipe, okay? Read it. You got it? Okay. Now I go and start, start to cook. Hmm? That's cooking me, mixing those ingredients. And then tasting can start to come. As you cook, you can start to taste, right? Through smelling, hmm? through hearing, the popping of the pakoras, frying, and so on and so forth. And, uh, and through touching the ingredients. And, so, and then finally it comes on the tongue and the tasting is there. So we don't jump in to expect to taste too much, but we, we do jump in to try to understand what, what, the, what is the recipe. So this is the tattva, the philosophy, the theology. Mm-hmm. So from a theological point of view, the buck stops with Krishna. But with a, from, a, from a rasic point of view, it goes on from there. Mm. I said this morning, people sometimes ask, sometimes materialistic people ask, that if, if we say, uh, if they ask, who created the world? We say, God created the world. Or the world comes from God. There's no real creation, ex nihilo, in, in the Bhagavad. But uh, the source of the world is God. So you say, okay, well, who's the source of God? And who's God? So Krishna, to be simple. It's more complex than that. But, uh, but okay, then who's the source of God? Would be the, sometimes they ask that kind of a question. So we'd say, who's the source of Krishna? Radha. Who's the source of Radha? Krishna. This is the idea. Hmm? So Radha is, you cannot have Krishna without Radha. That is not possible. Hmm? In, in the form of Swayam Bhagwan. Hmm? We discussed this a little bit this morning. Hmm? It's a very nice idea. So from the Bhava point of view, from the Rasa point of view of the text, Jai Radhe. Srimad Bhagavatam. Sri means Radha, the Bhagavat, the life of, of the Bhagavat, and Sri is the life. Hmm? Brahman takes on a life. Hmm? He's, he's everywhere. So, what can he do? If you're everywhere, where, where can you go? <laughs> if you woke up this morning and realized you're everywhere, where, you're stuck. <laughs> There's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. Hmm? So there are some people that have an experience like that, and they don't go anywhere, and they don't do anything. Hmm? But we find in the Bhagavad a, that this Brahman is moving, has a life. In fact, the book is about the life of Brahman, and that life is Sri. Hmm? That Sri means that Surup Shakti, that Radha is the pinnacle of, that Bhakti is constituted of. This is making Brahman alive. And move, and that which is everywhere 
is now moving. Hmm? We're coming from a very kind of a dvaitic, abheda, non-difference. There's no difference. There's nothing to do then. Variety is the spice of life. There's no difference. There's only there's no. <laughs> you see, nothing to be said. Nothing to be. Nothing to be heard. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, not enough to be said. Not enough to be heard. Hmm? Because he who's everywhere is moving. How do we think about that? Hmm? If you want a Zen cone, you should think of this one. Uh, who's everywhere? How can he move? Hmm? So this idea of Krishna. And this means bhakti. Hmm? Bhakti is the life. It's causing Brahman to move. And this is the subject of the Bhagavatam. It's, so, it's, it's about consciousness, but it's about the consciousness of consciousness. It's not like, it's not about consciousness 101, which I, we were talking about earlier. Consciousness is different from matter. Matter is a, is experienced consciousness as the experiencer. This is like the real basic stuff. I know it's a long ways for, for a lot of us nonetheless, but it's very basic, elementary. The Bhagavatam is kind of like going on from there. It's in, that's included in here, of course, but, but it, it wants to go so much further. What are the possibilities in, uh, of, of consciousness? And it ultimately, of course, comes to the point of consciousness has is is of uh, of a loving nature it exists we're talking about supreme consciousness here the god it, it exists it 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 is, it is knowledge it, it, it knows and it loves and the bhagwan aspect is the loving aspect hmm? love means requires two and the two become one in the dynamic sense and there's reciprocal dealings and there's movement as i said we move until we find love. When we find love, we start to move again in a different circle. Hmm? So, this is what the Bhagavatam is about. This kind of circle of, uh, of, of divine love and how to, how to differentiate ourselves from matter and in the, in the context of trying to enter that circle. Hmm? By following, as I said earlier, in the footsteps of someone who's on that kind of merry-go-round. Got off for a moment only to take us by the hand and say, come on, like a little child, come on, we get on the horse together and go round and round. Hmm? And there's no looking back. Hmm. So we enter the Bhagavat here in the 13th <coughs> chapter where Prabhupada left the world. And in this chapter, this sutra, to unlock the philosophy of the Bhagavatam, Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, comes out because... Brahma that had his forehead spinning hmm? when he saw that he had stolen all of Krishna's calves and cowherd's friends, put them in a cave. This is Leela, of course. And in the Leela, Krishna manifested himself as replicas of all the cowherds and all the calves. And when Brahma saw this, it went on for one year, he was very bewildered by this because he exercised all of his own 
uh, Shakti's own power to accomplish the, uh, the, the, the theft, so to speak. If we look carefully at that, he wasn't actually successful, but at any rate, um, when he came back and all the boys were still there and all the calves, he was very much bewildered. And at the end, of course, Krishna showed that he himself was all the boys and all the calves, and he did that by way of manifesting in 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 the place of all the cows, the calves, and boys, his Vishnu, Narayan form, that Brahma was familiar with, and uh, and he showed Narayans, if you will, emanating from himself. Narayan has universes emanating from himself, as it's uh, thought, and Krishna had. Narayans emanating from him. Brahma was like Vimohan, very bewildered. Because hmm? this was just a cowherd. Hmm? Eating yogurt and rice and fruit in the forest with some friends. He, he looked interesting enough, but, <laughs> but not that interesting. So the background, this chapter, these chapters bring out the the background, the Aishvarya, the 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 the, the, the godliness hmm, of Bhagavan Sri Krishna, that puts his sweetness in context and makes it as sweet as it is. That if the Godhead, who who Ryan's can come from, who, from whom universes come from, and so forth, could be your friend, that's pretty extraordinary. And when he, he starts to act like that, he he like he's like forgetting himself. Krishna is, is, is actually Bhagavan forgetting himself. And when you forget yourself, you do crazy things. And those crazy things, that's our good luck. Hmm? If Bhagavan forgets himself, that's good for us. Hmm? Because then he, 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 he may become available in ways that otherwise it was not possible to approach him. This Vrindavan Lila, you see, this is the Achilles heel of the idea of Bhagavan. This is where you can... It's very high. You think, well, how can you enter there? So, but it is—it's an entry point that's been opened up that you can enter in, like you could know in no other way. What is that circle, Prema Madhurya? How much the devotees are endowed with love for Krishna there? It's called Prema Madhurya. Narayan does not have those kind of associates endowed with Prema Madhurya. Hmm? What kind of circle is that? And what does it mean to follow? We said in the beginning, bhakti, a devotee. It means who has that kind of prema madhurya? Who has a taste for that? Hmm? What is that? That is so dear to Krishna that it's got his attention completely. You see, who cares about that? Who cares about Krishna? We care about boga and tyaga. We care about acquiring things and giving them up. We care about chasing after them and running away from them. That's what we care about. And maybe we ask God to help us. <laughs> help me help me get things. Help me, these things are chasing me. <laughs> get me out of here. Hmm? Get me that loan. Get me out of this mortgage. <laughs> so, you know, okay. Right, and then someone may say, "Get me out altogether. I'm out. 
<laughs> okay, you want eternal life? That's also possible. Take it. Hmm? Some may say, well, I think, you know, all right, I don't want to take, I don't want to get out, but uh, I should I should serve God. Okay, serve me. <laughs> Go for it. Yes. I wake up every now and then, accept your offering, and I go back to sleep. Hmm? Something like that. But Krishna never sleeps. Hmm? Then the lights go out, the window opens, and now he goes. Hmm? This is his Leela. That means he's so alive, so awake to the bhakti. The bhakti has, he cannot sleep. It's so much activated him. This is the philosophical, theological implication. Hmm? So, in other words, these devotees, they don't want anything. Amikichaina is chintamani dam chintamani prakarasadmasu kalparikshilakshabiteshu suravi abhibhalayantam lakshmi sahasrasata sambrahmas. You know, Narayana's got one lakshmi. <laughs> lakshmi sahasrasata sambrahma. He's got thousands of Lakshmis and they're endowed with very extraordinary love. Hmm? The place is made of the philosopher's stone that if you touch the ground to the other metal, it said the, the, the metal turns into gold. The, the, the trees are uh, kalpa bricks. You can get anything from the cows, others, comedy, you can milk out anything. Hmm? All your desires can be fulfilled. And people don't want anything. This is the idea. They don't want anything. We describe it like this, so people think, maybe I'll go there. Hey, that sounds pretty good. And then you start to think about it, and you, and you think, you get there, or close by, you get a vision of it, and you go, why these people aren't pumping those cows for, you know, this or that? <laughs> well, what's going on there? You know, there's something else that their life is orbiting around. Something else. This Krishna. Hmm? They want only Krishna. So the implication is, if you want only Krishna, I only want to be the friend of Krishna, hmm? for example. It's an audacious statement. Who do you think you are? You're just a materially conditioned soul for so many, you know, from a time without beginning, and you have this kind of aspiration, and, and so who are you? You say, well, I'm, yeah, I'm what, I, what? Don't blame me. Blame my guru. Hmm? <laughs> He's attracted me to this idea, and, that, and that's what I want. Hmm? Yes, we have to take certain steps to get there. Hmm? But wanting that in and of itself makes Krishna so disposed towards us. Because who wants it? Who wants him? They want things from him. They want to get away from things. Hmm? Uh, they may want to worship God because it's the right thing to do, dutifully, but... To love him on his terms, where he can relax, and doesn't have to be God. Hmm? This is very extraordinary. So, that circle of devotees, from that circle of devotees, this is where this Namsankirtan is coming. This is the dawn, the wealth of Prem. It's coming through the, the, the Namsankirtan hmm? to us from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He's extending this. It's also, this is a very. Uh, Extraordinary idea. This is what Bhagavatam is inviting us into. This is the inner 
world of consciousness, not 101 consciousness, but 108. It means, what is the consciousness of consciousness? What is, this is Krishna Chaitanya. Hmm? Krishna consciousness. Hmm? Uh, so all these, all these things, this is not an irrelevant book is what I want to say. You know, it's just an old book on the shelf. It's dealing with a very um, current and relevant topic, the nature of consciousness. And it goes into it in great depth. What are the possibilities of the subjective world? We're thinking what are the possibilities of the objective world at the cost of even even uh, acknowledging the subjective world? This is a great, a huge loss. No matter how technologically advanced and sophisticated our approach may be, for investigating the the na- uh, nature of material existence, um, I mean, what uh, it said, gain the world and lose your soul. What what do you got? Nothing, less than nothing. Hmm? This is the idea. So. It's a beautiful uh, chapter <laughs> and verse that we come to here in Srimad Bhagavatam. And we haven't got time to go into it at too much length, given the introduction that we've uh, just endured. Forgive me. But, uh, but uh, uh, in this chapter, where Krishna is described as the personality of Godhead, the, the source of Narayan and so forth, and we're given a key understand the whole book and Brahma's head they're spinning around and so on and so forth we also learn in here what is the most lovable object and that's what this section that this this verse I cited um, begins to introduce the verse describes how um, Yama Yamena Krishna has a life and it kind of has a schedule of events, and so, but it departs from the schedule every now and then, like our lives. It's, the Bhagavatam is like a day in the life of Krishna. Hmm? Gives a basic outline of how the life works. Hmm? Uh, it's it's divided eight, eightfold and so forth. But within that, then, well, there are variations. Every day you take breakfast at this time, but somebody sometimes somebody comes over for breakfast. It's unexpected, and it could create a a slight departure from the norm and so forth. So this whole leela is like that. It's a slight departure from the daily norm. Krishna got up early and he had some exciting thoughts on his mind uh, and uh, he went out. Normally Balaram will come in the morning and blow his bugle. And all millions and millions, goti goti cowherds will will assemble in the courtyard of Nanda Maharaj to gather up Krishna and uh, take breakfast and, and head out into the forest and so forth. So, but this day Krishna got up early and blew his his his, his horn, and so Balaram thought something going on today. <laughs> what? But it was the monthly birthday of Balaram. In other words, the day, the, the time of the moon, uh, the, the phase of the stars that corresponds annually with the birthday. It's kind of a sub-birthday type thing. And he 
had some relative over and he was really stuck. <laughs> I've got to sit here on the couch and or whatever and go 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 through these formalities and so forth. And Krishna has some excitement in his mind. <laughs> So, of course, Krishna without Balaram is Krishna uh, gone wild. (laughs) (laughs) Balaram is the Mariyata guru of Krishna. So, Balaram teaches Krishna the proper behavior as he's instructed to do every single day in eternity by Mother Yashoda. Don't let him do this. Don't let him do that. Watch out on this side. Watch him on that side and so forth. Hmm? Of course, we, we would think, why didn't he, if he's the Mariyata guru of Krishna, then why didn't he stop Krishna from running with the gopis at night? Hmm? No, he, 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 he facilitated that by, step, by getting out of the way. Hmm? If he was present, then they couldn't have that kind of freedom because he's the older brother and they would have to show respect. And so, so the implication is, no, that's not bad behavior. <laughs> This is the most extraordinary behavior of Bhagwan. Hmm. Anyway, with Balram not there, certainly Krishna's going to get in trouble. And so then the Leela with Agasur and so on and so forth. He entered the mouth of the snake and the boys were swallowed and he saved them. And, and Brahma came and all these things happened. And in a, in a, in a few hours of eternity and Krishna's returning home as if nothing happened, but so much has happened. And all the cowherd boys and all the calves that went with him in the morning have all returned, but they're all him now. He's taken the forms of all the calves. He's taken the form of all the, the boys. And what this section of the Bhagavatam then in, in this chapter is, is about is how it's starting to become apparent to Balaram that something extraordinary is going on here because it describes how the cows were more attracted to their calves who now were about a year old. This is like a year has passed and Balaram has been covered by Krishna's yoga maya hmm, so that he wouldn't understand what happened. Because if he did, he would miss Sridham, Subal, Stoka Krishna and all of his friends. It would be too hard on him. Krishna wouldn't miss them because he expanded himself in a form to even be with the boys that, that were stolen at the same time. It's very complicated. But, but as three, four, five, six days before the end of the year, hmm, when the Leela would come full circle, Krishna started to lift his yoga mind, and Balaram starts to, he saw this happening for a year, but didn't dawn on him. Why are those cows more attracted to the calves that were born a year ago than they are to the new calves? Have you ever seen a cow how attracted she is to the calf, the new calf? Who, 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 who hasn't seen a, cow, a calf born? Raise your hand. Who has not seen a calf born? Oh, you must see, you must go sometime. Right. So, oh, you know, so much affection. Mm, mm. Such a sweet moo at that time. Mm, mm. Mm. And, you know, what happened, you know? All this pain and everything, and then something happened and just an ocean of affection and the udder just fills up with milk and sniffing and licking that calf and licking that calf and don't get too close. Hmm? Anybody else? Very protective and so much affection. 
for the new calf. And here these calves, cows were showing more affection for calves that had been weaned a year ago than for their new calves. They were running down Govardhan Hill when they saw the calves at a distance as if they only had two feet. In other words, one set of feet. In other words, the two feet were like, you know, when you run fast, when you have four legs. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> you got to keep the two feet real close together. You know, you can't have them spread out like this. Like when you walk. So, like this. They were, the implication is they were running fast. And they got to the cows. And normally when the calf will, will suckle the teats of the, of the, of the cow, then she'll you know, turn, her, turn her sideways and lick them on the back and in the butt and, and, and so forth. And it was as if they were ready. To, they were trying to swallow them, just with affection. Hmm? And so Balaram thinking, "This is very extraordinary." Uh, and this is a very nice example because the, the cow is really the really the personification of motherly love. And this is where this whole idea of oceans of milk and that come from. It's speaking about that Golok is an affectionate place. Hmm? It's full of affection, milk corresponds with affection. This is the idea. The more you love that cow, you see the more milk she will give. Hmm? A cow will give, uh, will increase her milk hmm, almost as much by brushing her thoroughly in a day as if you increased the amount of, uh, uh, proportionately, the amount of grains. Grains have a direct correspondence with how much milk they'll produce. Hmm? If you brush them down affectionately and so forth. It would be like giving them extra grains. Hmm? So anyway, very m- milk is is a, is a symbol, the sign of their affectionate. It's called Golok, that place. Goloka, Gokulakyam, Mahatpalam. Means there's lots of milk there, lots of love there. Hmm? Got to have a lot of love. Yeah, <laughs> another one. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very affectionate place. Krishna rules by affection. Brahma tries to rule by four heads, but it's not working. It's just like can't quite even cover all the all the bases. Shiva rules in another way by like stepping back from the whole thing, just meditating on it. Hmm. Something like that. Krishna is ruling with affection by affection's force. This is this is this is why he is. Um, the end of all. He doesn't have the four arms or the eight arms or the eight heads or the different weapons and so with all the gods and goddesses. No. He's only playing. But play requires... In order to play, you have to have power. Right? In other words, you have to have money in the bank if you want to take a vacation. That money represents some power. So who's only playing is all-powerful. This is Krishna. Hmm? And playing with cows... What are cows? Givers. Hmm? But if I only give, Swami, who will take care of me? That is Gopal, protector of the cows. Hmm? Only giving, this is bhakti. Don't worry. <laughs> Krishna will... Have, and you can only give. You can really only, only give. Give only absolute love. If you know Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, because you have to, if you give completely, you have to find the person who can take completely. 
This is the idea of Krishna's two Bhagavan Swami. I said this is one half of the equation of full giving, full loving. You have to have the person who can take all the love. And, and the taker, who's actually capable of taking all the service and love, is so because only that center, that person, that center, has the power to transform the love in such a way in the service that it is redistributed. Like the stomach has the power to transform the food that we give it in such a way that no other part of the body has, that it will be tr uh, re re redistributed throughout the rest of the body. Hmm? This is the center then. The center is a giver also, in the context of being the taker. So Krishna's two Bhagavan Swami, you sort it out, and, and here is the place to give your love. If you want to give without any taking attached to that, and give ab love absolutely, Hmm? wise love, then Krishna is the center to give in. And of course, then the other half of the equation is you have to give without without any expectation. You may want to give without expectation of getting, and you, but you still have that, unfortunately. But still, but still, if you if you find the center to give, you've got half the equation, and that will help you to bring the other half in, in due course. Because it's hard to give to Krishna with motivation, without the motivation being taken out into course. If we do this, is giving this, if we do this sadhana, that means to say, under the direction of a, of a, of a real uh, devotee, a taster, and so forth. So, in this leela, hmm, Balaram saw these cows, and it's a very nice example because they, their love for, I mean, for people familiar with the agricultural life, agrarian life, it's it's, it's just really uh, is a powerful message. It's not as powerful a message for the people in the industrial society, and the cows running down the hill like this, you know, uh, as if their forelegs were two. And uh, but anybody has experience like this. It just it really brings home the 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 idea, the measure of the bhakti. And so why they are like that? Why is because well because Krishna had become the calves. Hmm? And Krishna had become the boys of the mothers and the fathers for one year. Hmm? And so their love for their sons, their love for their calves on the part of the cows was greater than it was for their own, so to speak, sons and calves because Krishna... So the message here, um, among other things one of the conclusions of this section that's nice, which got me to think about this today, is that, that this section of Bhagavatam is defining the why we love, hmm? which we all do. Why, why we love, um, and, it, and I'll conclude with this, it, it begins in this way, we love the self, because the self is lovable. Hmm? there's an appearance that we love things but if you look carefully that's, that's not the fact we don't love the things we only love the things that are ours or that we want to be ours what does that mean? if it's mine or I want it and by wanting it 
I've identified with it. It's mine. I don't have it yet, but I want it. I want it to be mine, or it is mine. When I, when I want it to be mine, it is mine. I think it's me. I want that. That that's. I'm building an identity based on that. I want that car. That's me. You understand what I'm saying? So, if I if my car breaks down, if you're here today. And someone, your daughter calls you and says, Mom, I just crashed your car. You're pretty troubled by that. Hmm? Your daughter's fine and everything like that, but you know, she just crashed your car. And so why is it a problem? Hmm? You can read in the paper, cars are crashing all the time. You can drive down the highway, there's a crashed car, oh, too bad. Just keep driving. <laughs> Why is there any difference? It's just the same metal and rubber and, and so forth. Because it's mine. Hmm? When I say mine, it means I'm in it. I, the self, have extended myself into the thing and therefore the thing becomes lovable because I'm in it. So what's really lovable is I, the self. Do you understand? Hmm? And because the self... Therefore, the lesson in the Bhagavatam, this uh, Brahma's prayers kind of concludes with this uh, in the next chapter. The, the self is the lovable object. Hmm? There's some ananda to, anandatvam to the self. Hmm? It's, it's, it's the lovable object in comparison to matter. Hmm? And then, in the context of the, why is the self lovable? Why is the self lovable? Ah, because the self, whatever is attractive about the self is derived from the Supreme Self. Hmm? We have derived Ananda, hmm? dependent Ananda, and he is independent Ananda. Hmm? So, there's good reason the implication is for loving Krishna. Any question? Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Um, when you're talking about devotees uh, being willing to be a, uh, so willing to be of service that all they want to do is to like Krishna and that suffering doesn't matter to that. What about in the, in the situation of separation when they have feelings like uh, longing, ache, No, uh, yes and no. I I explained that, um, for example, if it is pleasing to Krishna for Krishna to be apparently elsewhere, hmm, and my only objective is to please Krishna, do you understand? Then the fact that he's not with me, hmm, but is not an issue for me, because he's pleased. Hmm? Still, um, there are uh, symptoms of such separation. And what we find is that in that, the heart is growing fonder. Therefore, we do put some emphasis on the ecstasy of separation hmm, sometimes, even, uh, even over union. 
especially in sadness in the sadhaka's life because uh, we say separation makes the heart grow fonder so love and separation is a huge uh topic but it's it's an apparent kind of a pain it said for example it said in union with krishna there's one krishna in separation from krishna there's millions of krishnas wherever i look everything is reminding me of krishna everything in union he's right here hmm? in separation everywhere i look the whole world is reminding me of krishna I, i'm seeing him everywhere so there's uh, there's an argument that sometimes it's made hmm? theological argument that he's more present in separation than in union hmm? Yeah. No, they don't suffer. They have no suffering. It is all, it is said, Bhaya bisha jwala hoi bitare ananda moi. Krishna premier adbhuta charita. The wonderful character of preem is that it looks like it's suffering like anything on the outside, but inside it is ananda moi. It is full of ananda. Hmm? Something like that. <laughs> Okay, that, that satisfied you. What's the next question? Yes. Where, where does that love come from? And um, I see your son here. Um, it's actually my husband. The sister. I see. He was a Um, so sometimes, sometimes you feel like there's like not enough love to go around, and then you know if you have spouses and children. Friends, and sometimes, like, the, where does it come from? How do you get more to, to give? <laughs> 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 Expand yourself. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you kind of talk about material situation, uh, and. Uh, well, I mean, I know they're, they're different, not, but I mean, even that spiritual love for Krishna. Well, I, how do you get more love? Yeah. That's the question. So the the, the the answer is by associating with those who have more love. Then you get more love. You get more, it, for example, in this context, we get more of an understanding to draw upon and that in situations where we need to give, even materially speaking, more in in, in service to our situation. Of course, you're a devotee. Your life is a devotee. Your children are devotees and you love your children and they help you to love Krishna so you have some kind of a suhrit rati with your, your, your kids you know they're, 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 you have love for the for the friend of Krishna and you have love for Krishna something like that on a lower level so and it's alright to love others this is one of the beautiful things about bhakti in, in the Gyanamarg you can't love anybody forget that hmm? and there's nobody to love so anyway <laughs> but, it, but but in Bhakti Marg, then, then you know, the, the, all the devotees love one another. They love one another. That, in the in the full sense of the term, that's called a, a sanchari. It means uh, the sanchari is called surit rati. It means love of the friend. So they love Krishna and they love the friend. And the friend. Sometimes they love the friend equally with Krishna. Sometimes a little less than Krishna, and sometimes more. Hmm? 
So, for example, Radha's attendants, handmaidens, they love her more than Krishna. Hmm? So, um, so at any rate, um, the answer is that by sadhu sangha, that's how we then we get then you, 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 you even in this context we hear different things, we get a better understanding of what loving constitutes in terms of bhakti and so forth, and these kind of the things we've talked about will, should come to the surface in times of need when we're, you're called on more by your situation and your your cows need love and your your, your husband needs it and your, your kids need it and your friend Gurangi Priya down the street needs it or something. <laughs> and so, yeah, you're, uh, you know. So, uh, yeah, I have the same problem. So... <laughs> Lots of people <laughs> want love, so sometimes, sometimes you know, you 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 go as far as you can. And sometimes you have to say, "I'm busy too," and that that works also. That also works. <laughs> what else? Another question? We talked for a long time, but yes, uh, one one more. Okay. Understanding who we are, is that a requirement? Yeah. Well, um, you mean like you're a soul and other bond and what's a soul no, constitute? direct experience. Understanding to, you know, not just intellectual, but... Is understanding through direct experience required? Yeah. I would say it would be desired. Uh, understanding through direct experience will be fostered, uh, I would think, by understanding through... Um, but, but through theoretical understanding, through proper theoretical understanding, hmm, we are better positioned hmm, to have experiential understanding. That's why Rupa Goswami says that, that faith that is well informed from the scriptural argument uh, better equips one for treading the path. In other words, it better equips one for entering into experiential understanding of the topics. And yes, it's required, certainly it's required. Um, you know, the teacher should be, know the theory and should have experience. And because if you, you can know the theory and not have experience, but your knowing of the theory will be, will be very different than your knowing of the theory along with direct experience. In other words, you can know the theory academically, for example. Hmm? You, once Bhakti Pramod Puri Goswami Marsh, there was one my body speaking on Bhakti, and he said, but he knows the theory better than we do. <laughs> <laughs> and he chuckled. Uh-huh. But of course, he didn't know anything at the, at the same time, right? And so... So the, the, the theoretical knowing that is informed by practical knowing, experiential knowing, enables us to know it in a way that we couldn't know otherwise and speak about it in a way that simply academically knowing would, would not give rise to. Speaking about it, for example, compellingly and plumbing the depths of the implications and, and, and so on and so forth. Because that, that will, of course, the more our, we have experience, the more the theory becomes alive to us, and uh, and it says as all that it says 
to us. With the extent to which we lack experience, it doesn't say as much to us. So we can't get out of it what's, what's there. Therefore, short of experience, we attach ourselves to someone who has that experience. That will be very helpful for us. But yes, we, you know, you asked, is it required? It's, 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 it's required to effectively teach. Certainly it's required. Uh, and, um, and it's desired, <laughs> as I say, for any practitioner. And this is just to make the right choice for oneself, you know, like where I am right now, you know, what the next step is supposed to be. Yeah. Well, well, theoretical understanding of the sacred texts and what they actually say, what they actually mean, hmm, can help us to sort out uh, our our motives and understand how to proceed. The problem is that sometimes that that people become teachers without experience, and then the teaching comes out in such a way that it's not actually very insightful, and maybe even it's confused and it's 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 used. And the teaching is supposed to use you, but some people use the teaching, or a shadow of the teaching, if you will, for their own uh, purposes and motives that they themselves are unaware of, and, and this makes for a problematic situation for those who are trying to learn from them. Hmm? And then you you don't get anything out of bhakti; it becomes you know, uh, but it's not bhakti that you're you know getting in a sense uh, anyway. So that's a problem, but. From the right source, if we get bhakti, we hear, we're school and so forth. This should make it very clear to us how to proceed. Hmm? Um, but I mean, I can't, obviously, I, I hardly know you, so I couldn't, you know, weigh on, uh, in on what you should do <laughs> necessarily. But I, but, I, but I would say, in general, you should hear from uh, sadhus, real sadhus, about bhakti, if, if you have interest in bhakti. And I think you as you understand the teaching more comprehensively, you find, oh, it's, uh, it's, it, it's, it would be very difficult to make a different choice to, to become a Christian or, or a Jewish yogi or a Buddhist and so forth. It would be difficult, really, if you really understand the argument. Yeah. Hmm? Let's say it's a teacher. Can it teach them instantly? Will it leave that, that uh, doubt? Or, or sometimes you will say, oh, you know, you need another 10 years. To, to, to do what? The whole thing? To overcome doubt. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, you see, yeah, what we need to do is, the teaching is, we should sit and doubt. Come before the guru and doubt. That's what you should do. Doubt the guru. This is, this is our teaching. <laughs> Sounds a little different than maybe the way you heard it, but you're listening to me, so you can expect that kind of stuff. <laughs> doubt. Sit before the guru and doubt. Hmm? But don't just sit there and doubt silently. Bring up your doubts. Hmm? So you sit and you bring up the doubts. And then you see if the doubts can be resolved hmm, by the teacher. 
And if the teacher can resolve the doubts by way of citing the revelation, hmm, explaining the implications of it and so forth, and awakening faith in you in that um, revelation, then your problem is solved. So the doubts aren't the problem. Voicing the doubts before someone who um, may have the capacity to remove them, that is what is required. Hmm? So therefore you bring your doubts and it's expected that you're going to have doubts and questions and Parikshit Marsh is asking questions. He's got doubts. Sukadeva is not saying, you can't ask that question. Don't speculate. <laughs> or something like that. You know, just, just go out and sell a book or something. <laughs> he's not saying that. Yeah, let's see, if you're at the time... Hmm? You think no one can resolve your doubt? Yeah, yeah. You, you, know, you, have, it. you have it. You know, you think that uh, you're afraid of him exposing you because uh-huh. you felt it enough or, or maybe you, you, know, you, saw the, you lost the faith. Well, the yeah. I mean, it's true that to, to sit before the Guru with doubt, as I'm recommending, is you have to have enough faith to to encourage, to voice your doubt that in the hope that it might be resolved. Hmm? And, uh, you know, there's a lot of damaged goods out there today from people who weren't able to resolve doubts, unfortunately. So, but, you know, um, it's also said that like attracts like, so if we're sincere in our own way and honest and so forth, then, then, um, Sadhusanga will come to us in due course. Real Sadhusanga will come to us. Sometimes, let's say, a salesman comes to your door and sells you a product. And, you know, you see the sample. It's a vac- used to do, they used to do vacuum cleaners and stuff like that. You know, it works great. Look at that. You don't need to use a broom, and it's even better. And, and so you say, I'll take one, you know. So you give him the check. He says, okay, the company's going to send it to you, and it's going to be here in a week. So you wait a week, it doesn't come. It doesn't two weeks, it doesn't come. Three weeks after a while, you know, you call the company. You tell the company, look, so and so was here. He sold me a vacuum. I gave the check, and they checked their records. And yes, the check cashed. And so the, the salesman didn't deliver the goods. He kept, or he kept the check, or something, whatever. Say so he kept the check. So what does the company do in that situation? Did they say, well, too bad? They think, oh, we've got to make up for this. They send their best local representative there brings you a, a vacuum and a dustpan <laughs> there you go <laughs> something like that so uh, uh, so don't don't despair you see don't despair uh, in, in, indeed um, you know the more hopeless you become in one sense the more you're moving in a position to be able to uh, attract help. Hmm. So, take a little time, you know. But, uh, be, be honest, be sincere with yourself and try to pursue, uh, obviously you're interested in spiritual life, so, and Krishna Bhakti, so, your name is Krishna Das. <laughs> All right, so, we'll stop there. Gantara Srimad Bhagavatam, Kandai.